want you to think about a time in your life where you had a relationship with somebody from a distance. Maybe it's a friend or a friend or somebody you knew through social media. Maybe it's a, a, a friend you're really excited about, rooming with, going into college from high school. Then you get to spend time with this friend, and all of a sudden, what your perception of that person is doesn't really meet reality. The person you thought you knew, after spending much time with them, wasn't who you thought they were. Many of us have all these stories, right, that we thought we knew the person, but we really did not. Well, that's one of the reasons we study the Bible pretty slowly here at College Park, we spend time really digging into God's Word. It's when we spend over a year in one gospel. And one of the goals of this gospel is to do this, to take all that collective information, all those facts you've heard about Jesus, all those stories you know, the sermons you've heard, those stories you've heard from vacation Bible school or your youth group. And we've had all these collective information. And the gospels try to answer this one question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Each gospel tries to answer that very question. Matthew in his gospel tries to show you who is Jesus through Jesus' teaching. The gospel of Mark tries to show you who Jesus is through Jesus' serving. The gospel of Luke tries to show you who Jesus is through historical facts. The Gospel of John, however, is unique. So you, in John, we have an artist. John is similar to a tour guide walking us down his memory lane. He tries to show you scenes of Jesus over and over again. Remember, this is when this happened. This is when this happened. And John's an artist because he uses imagery throughout the whole book. Chapter 1, we see light and life. Chapter 2, we've already seen water and wine. Chapter 3, we see wind and the Spirit. Chapter 4, we see water and the Spirit. Water and life. We see bread of life. Over and over again, John uses imagery to show you who Jesus is. Because John understands something we should probably learn more. That our, the, the doorway to our affections is our imaginations. Our imaginations affect our affections. You know this, because you could read historical news, you could read data, but you hear a story from somebody that's really a fact, and it hits you right in the heart, doesn't it? Hear a testimony of somebody who came to know Christ, and it hits you. Our imaginations are the doorways to our affections, and that's what John's trying to do. And he writes these stories in these chapters to show us really one main point. When I teach our junior hires and high schoolers, I usually take a Bible passage and open it up and, and take them to one main truth, one main takeaway from this passage. And that's what I want to do with you this morning. I'm going to give you one main truth that you walk away with and you hang your hat on. And here's that truth. Here's what I believe John's trying to, through his spirit, speak to us today. It's this. When Jesus enters your life, his plan is to clean house. When Jesus enters your life, his plan is to clean house. So let's dive into verse 13 of this passage. When the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, so this Passover was this feast that happened every year, celebrated 
the, the escape of Israel from Egypt, God's judgment upon Egypt. So Jesus was going to Jerusalem for the Passover. And look at the first place he goes in verse 14, in the temple. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the holy city. One of the first place he goes is the temple of God. He's going to what in verse 16 he calls his father's house. He's going to dad's house. This is where, he, where prayers were confessed, where sacrifices were made. It's where you met with God. The temple was access to God. It's where God dwelled with his people. Maybe you're hearing like, okay, Zach, I've heard the temple used a lot. What is it? What goal does it have? Why did God use it? Essentially, the temple was God's dwelling with man. This started even in Genesis. The Garden of Eden was the first temple. God fully dwelling with mankind. But God couldn't allow sin to live in that dwelling place. So he had to kick Adam and Eve out of this garden. Then Israel was captured by Egypt, and in Egypt they were rescued by Moses. And Moses is sojourning to the promised land. God established what's called the tabernacle with his people. God wanted to dwell with his people, so he set up this tabernacle outside courts, this traveling temple in the wilderness. They finally get to the promised land, and David really wants to build this permanent temple for the people of God, and he doesn't get to do it, but his son does. And Solomon establishes the temple in the middle of Israel. That temple gets torn down. It gets torn down a few times. And that's what we find, rebuilt temple of God in the middle of the city. The temple was where sacrifices were made. The temple was where the priests would make petitions for their people. The temple was access to God. The temple was the dwelling place of the glory of God. God wanted to dwell with his people. And God, in the form of Jesus Christ, the man of God, came to earth, and the the first place he goes to his father's house. He wanted to be with his father. And when he walks in, check out what he sees. Look at verse 14. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. This holy place of God, the outer courts, were the goal of the outer courts was prayer and confession and worship. He walks into the outer courts, and what does he find? He finds a marketplace. The reason these people were here, you got to think about, the, you, people would travel in for maybe even hundreds of miles to go to the temple. And they would have to, when they get there, they have to pay a temple tax and they would actually have to offer a sacrifice. And traveling hundreds of miles with an animal probably would have been risky. That animal may not have made it, and if it would have made it, it wouldn't have been acceptable sacrifice. So these very wise Jews created a business strategy. It's kind of like Disney World. You get there and they have everything to offer you. They walk into the temple, and they don't have an animal with them, but there's a booth there that on the sign says, we sell sacrifices. So they could buy a sacrifice and make an offering to God. Same thing with the money. These money changers were there because people would travel from other places, other countries, and their currency probably had pagan images on it. It's probably pagan money. 
And it'd probably be a little bit sacrilegious to pay your temple tax with pagan money. So these winsome Jewish business people created a system where you can come in and there'd be a kiosk where you can give them your pagan money and they give you Jewish shekels and they could pay their temple tax. If you think about it, they're actually doing a great service for the people of God. But Jesus didn't think of it that way. Look what he does. Look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. He, sold those, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus wasn't very fond of what they were doing. Because the place where he's expecting to enter, imagine the scene, for prayer and confession, looks similar to the livestock section of the fair. Now, there's nothing wrong with the livestock section of the fair, but the smells aren't the great, greatest, the sounds aren't that quiet to be praying, and over here in the corner you have an auction going on. One author said like this, the sound of confession had been replaced with the sound of commerce. The place of sobriety where God's right next to the, the, the holy of holies is right down the hallway. They are treating as very casual. They're not taking serious the worship of God. And Jesus makes a whip. He doesn't do what some of our other parents, our parents did. He doesn't grab the nearest tool, the nearest instrument to whip these people out of the room. He makes a whip. I've never made a whip myself. I'm sure it takes a little bit of time. But imagine being people in the room selling and trading. And there's a guy in the corner making a whip. Like, I don't know what that guy's doing over there. He's making a whip. What he's going to use that for? And just makes this whip and chases all the people out of the temple courts. Could you imagine the scene? You have oxen running everywhere. You have sheep running everywhere. You have pigeons flying everywhere. This is a, a chaotic scene. And you might think, wouldn't it have been easier for Jesus to just go, hey, um, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm the son of God. I don't think this is a good idea. Like, I know you are trying to do a good thing. Could you just move this down the road a little bit? Then we're all good. It would seem that Jesus wasn't very reasonable. But the reality is, Jesus knows that false worship needs to be uprooted immediately. Jesus was angry at how they were treating God's house. He didn't want to reason with these people. He didn't want to give them a lecture about how they're doing it wrong. He knew that sin must be treated at its root. Jesus is angry. Some of you may think, oh, no, 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 Jesus doesn't get angry. No, if you make a whip and chase people out of a room, you're angry. The reason Jesus is angry because he's zealous about his father's house. Look at verse 17. That when the disciples remember, looks like the disciples have this all throughout the Gospels, had this light bulb moment. The disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. 
See, when you're zealous about something, the opposite about that something makes you angry. Husbands, if you love your wife, when somebody mistreats your wife, anger is righteous. Parents, if you love your children, you're zealous for your children, mistreatment of your children should make you righteously angry. God was zealous for his dad's house, and he was angry. He chased these people out of the temple courts. And you can imagine the Jewish leaders didn't like this very much. Look at their responses in verse 18. So Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They essentially are saying, show me your ID. Okay, you just, you just ruined a whole business model. You better have some authority to do that. And they ask him for a miracle. They ask him for a sign. They ask him to prove it. Prove that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus, being the cunning, short-worded person he is, gave him this answer in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You want a, you want a sign? Destroy this temple in three days and raise it up. And they obviously did not understand what he did. Jesus does this all the time. He's going to do this in chapter 3 next week when, uh, when he's talking to the uh, Nicodemus. And to be in the kingdom of God, he must be born again. Nicodemus goes, um, how do I enter my mother's womb again? And Jesus talks to the woman at the well. Hey, you ask me and I'll give you living water. And the woman goes, uh, you don't even have a bucket. Jesus throws these one-liners and it goes straight over the Jewish leaders' heads. All these people's heads. And listen to what they say. They kind of make fun of him. Verse 20. And the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build the temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But John, the author, knew this. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, the temple mattered a lot, but in this scene, we're seeing where Jesus is saying the temple is no longer needed. The whole point of the temple is to point us to Jesus. In chapter 1 of John, verse 14, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. This temple, this tabernacle system was a foreshadowing of a temple that would come, and his name is Jesus. The goal of the temple was access to God, and Jesus says to the world in this passage, I am now your access to God. Jesus is the new temple. That's why Jesus' name is God with us, Emmanuel. You can sum up the God's mission in the story of redemption in three words, God with us. Jesus has entered this world. He's came to his father's house, but he's becoming the father's house. He's becoming the new temple. This is why in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, For there is one God, and we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The temple provided us access to God through sacrifices, through priests, through the system. There's no longer need for no system. We don't need a system anymore. We have Jesus. 
Jesus is our final sacrifice. Jesus is our final temple. Jesus is our final payment. Jesus has paid for our access to God. And that's why in Romans 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those where in Christ Jesus. Jesus is a new temple, and that's why Paul uses all over the New Testament that if you're a Christian, you are in Christ Jesus. You are in the temple of God. You will have access to God, and that's why when you pray, you pray in Jesus' name. We don't need a building any longer to have access to Jesus because we have access to Jesus through his work. Christian, if you're in Christ... If you call yourself a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ, you dwell with God. You have permanent access to God. You don't need a priest. You don't need a building. When you walked in this building, you got no closer to access to God. Jesus is your access to God. That's why. That's why you must put your faith in him. You must not earn it. You must not work for it. It will not get you there. There's no access to God outside of Jesus Christ. And he, he checks this with his receipts of his resurrection. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. His work and his resurrection is proof the temple is no longer needed. That's why in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, the church kept moving on. That's why we don't need Sundays where we have an altar down here and sacrificing animals. One, that'd be a, a news fiasco. But two, we no longer need it. Jesus is our final sacrifice. And these people, these Jewish leaders, wanted a miracle. They wanted, here's what they're saying, essentially. I'll believe in you. I'll trust you if you show me a reason why to. And it's why in verse 23 through 25, it says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed, many believed in his name. When they saw signs that he was doing, the 24 is so haunting. But Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what is in man. Jesus is not looking for us to believe in him because of what he did or what he does or what he may do. Jesus is looking for us to believe in him because he is the king of the world, savior of the world, the sacrificed lamb of the world. We want to believe in who he is, not just what he does. Many believed in his name. Many. Christians, there's many of us, even in this room, in our city, that call themselves Christian by name, but Jesus has not trusted himself to them. Jesus is looking to reign. God's temple was God's reign on earth. When you saw the temple, it signaled to you, God reigns here. God reigns here. He's not looking for lip service. He's not looking for jersey wares. We don't, we don't know we're Christians by name alone. We know we're Christians by faith alone. 
Jesus is the new temple, but what we must understand is that we are a new temple. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are, the, you are God's temple? You are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells in you. If you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. Listen to this, friend. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. God does not just want you to believe in him. He wants to reign in your life. So if you put your faith in Christ, you are in Christ. You're secure. Christ is your refuge. But when you do that, the spirit of God himself comes inside you and makes his home in you. The temple building no longer exists, but you are now God's temple. You know that? That you are the dwelling place of God, and what Jesus did to the temple, the Spirit wants to do in you. He wants to clean house. How you're not living according to the Spirit, Jesus wants to take a whip to that and clean house. He wants to reign over your life, not just have your lip service. So the question is, Zach, how do we do that? How do we allow Christ to reign over our lives? I want to offer you three suggestions this morning. Surrender. Surrender reign to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the line of the temple talks about this. You are not your own. For you're bought with a price to glorify God with your body. You do not own your body. Jesus owns your body. When you become a Christian, you surrender rights to your life. When you say yes to Jesus, when you, when you repent and believe, you surrender all rights. And here's why some of us are hesitant to do that. Because somewhere along the line, we've convinced ourselves that the more holy we are, the less joy we'll have. We believe the good life is found outside of life with Jesus. One of the reasons I'm a youth pastor, one of the reasons I've given my days to seeing, G seeing students know Jesus because there was times in my life where I did not surrender my life to Christ. I did not let Christ have reign over aspects of my life. I categorized God. I said, God, you need to stay over here. Stay in this room so nobody else sees you. And our students are tempted to have that reality every single day because the world is telling them that the good life is found outside of Christ. And our lifeblood and our ministry, the lifeblood of my ministry, will be helping teenagers know that the good life is found under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. The good life is not found in social media. The good life is not found in what the world thinks of you. The good life is not found in what college you go to. The good life is not found in what career you have. The good life is not found in what wife you find or husband you find. The good life is not found in any career path you have, how many children you have, or anything you do for the rest of your life. The good life is found under the rule and reign of Christ. Do you know that? Are there corners of your house in your life that you do not let light shine on? 
you've closed that door and locked it, God, you have nothing to do with that room. Or we surrender everything you have to the reign of Christ. We surrender everything you are to the reign of Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't know why you've came this morning. Maybe somebody invited you, but we're so glad you're here. And here's my plea to you today. Give your life to Jesus. Stop chasing something that you'll never find. Stop chasing the joy that will never satisfy you. Stop chasing life beyond Jesus. Life is found in Jesus. We would love to talk to you what it means to surrender your life to Christ today. Surrender your life to Christ. He wants to enter your life and clean house because he knows that joy is found when holiness increases. So surrender Secondly, confess. Listen, if you're God, in God's temple, you're in Christ, and the Spirit of Christ is in you, then your sins can't make God love you less. Some of us have sins that's harbored in our life for maybe even years. And we're terrified of what God may do if we actually tell him about him. First, let me encourage you that God already knows about him. And secondly, he knew about him when he paid for your sins. On the cross, Jesus knew about your sins. So we can go to him freely. That's why 1 John chapter 2 says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. John, the gospel writer and the epistle writer, he wants to point you toward holiness. Do not sin. But if you do, John's a realist. But if anyone does, Hear this good news, friend. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In your sin, your, your role is not to recluse, to shun away. No, 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 that's not, that has nothing to do with me or God, that God's too busy for that. Go to Jesus with your sins. Confess your sins to Jesus, and he is faithful and just to forgive you. He is not hovering over you with a hammer, waiting to hit you every time you sin. If you're in Christ, you are secure. When you pray to God, Jesus looks at God and says, that sin, I paid for that. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father advocating for you. Yes, Jesus is our judge, but he's our advocate. We can go to him freely. He's going to plead on our behalf. Confess our sins to Jesus. That room you haven't dealt with in your life, give it to Jesus. That secret you've been hiding, give it to Jesus. That addiction you've been harboring, give it to Jesus. He'll know what to do with it. Thirdly, invite. Some of us are really great at Bible studies and prayer groups. And those are great things, and we should be a part of those things. But what we really struggle with is inviting people into our lives to be real with us. 
Me and Caitlin hosted a small group four years before moving here, and that's the greatest things about the small group. There's life on life was great, and all the things encompassing the small group was great. One of the great things about small group was our house tended to be more tidy regularly. We know that people are coming over on a weekly basis, so we tended to keep our house more clean. I would even do the lawn mullet. Anybody know what the lawn mullet is? Where you mow the front half of the yard, but the back half is like you can hide a lion. (laughs) But people from the street view, like, man, this yard is excellent. I'm, I'm terrified for these Christians they're really good at Bible studies and prayer groups, but we're not really good at small groups or inviting people into our life because we're terrified of what room people may go in. We're terrified of what, what they might find when they go there. They might even find that I don't read my Bible on a regular basis. They might find that I'm actually not that good of a parent. They might find that I have addictions that I want nobody to know about. That room you keep locked up that you don't let anybody see in needs to be unlocked. Are you doing real life? Are you just walking in the church with your Jesus makeup on? How are you? Oh man, I'm great. Marriage is awesome. Kids are doing great. But on the inside, you know that that fight on the way to church was on the brink of a mess. The harshness toward your kids is crushing your marriage. That addiction in your life that you cannot shake is collapsing you on the inside. Friend, this church exists for those conversations. We are all a hot mess. Every single one of us. It's so funny how church people can act fake more often than not, but the fact that you walked in those doors this morning, you announced to the world, I need help. If you're a Christian, you need help. You need somebody speaking into your life, telling you where God is doing work and where you need to do work. It's why one of our core values of small groups is intentionally invasive. Our small groups scattered throughout the city are not just Bible studies. They're for people to look in each other's souls and shine a spotlight, show you where God is doing great work, and also show you where you need to uproot sin. We cannot act casually about our sin. We need to do all fronts, every base covered, fighting the waging war. Ultimately, if we don't, we'll be like the Jews in our marketplace in the temple, acting really casual about the holiness of God, acting very subtle. God's in the next room, but it's not a big deal. First Corinthians tells you God's temple will be holy, and you are God's temple. What are you going to do about that? So here's a question I want to leave you with. We're about to sing, the band's going to come up, we're going to sing a song. In this song, it's talking to you about surrendering everything. Here's a question I want you to ask yourself while singing that song. 
What part of your life have you not surrendered to the reign of Christ? What door have you not let open? What corner of your life have you neglected? That's my prayer for this morning. When God enters your house, when God enters your life, his plans are to clean house. Let's pray. Father, there's addictions in this room. There's pain in this room. There's marital strife in this room that nobody knows about. There are fights used this morning, words used this morning that are shameful. But you hear those. And you say to me, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I pray during this psalm that you would convict, but you would heal. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.